0: Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to you today. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome. Today, we're going to continue with Lesson 2 of our One in Messiah, Celebrating Our Jewish Heritage Study. And so I'd like for us to get into this message today. I'm teaching this class live, and normally I will insert the clip from the live class, but because of some technical difficulties we encountered this week, I'm going to do this one live with you right now. So we'll go from here, and we trust the Lord that his word will go forth, and what he wants said will be said and taught and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit. So thank you again for joining me. Now in lesson two of this One in Messiah study, where we are looking at the Jewish heritage and its connection to the church. Why is this study important for the church in the 21st century to understand? What is the basis for giving honor to the Jews and to the Jewish heritage that we have? So first of all, I'd like for us to look at several reasons for that as we go through here. The very first one I want to bring up is the covenant with Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob and the line from them according to the word of the living God that God made as an everlasting covenant. The beginning of that is found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and I'd like to read those again for us now. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you I will make you a great nation I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed It's interesting because in this verse he says I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in the original Hebrew if you look at those two words for cursed it's used two times there. There's two different words, though. One, it's talking about the people that would make light of the Jewish people, not give them honor, not give them value, but degrade them, belittle them, make light of them, make fun of them, that will treat them with disdain. God will curse, and it's a much stronger word. It's the kind that means that he would deprecate them. He is going to come through with a powerful force of consequence in a cursing manner to them. So it's, it's interesting because whatever attitude we have toward the Jewish people will come back in greater measure by God, whether we are blessing them. If we are blessing them, then he will bless us over and above. If we are cursing them in a small way, God will come back in a larger way with a curse upon the nation or the people who would do that. God's covenant with Abraham here is very serious and it's everlasting. I want us to look also at Jeremiah chapter 31 and I want to read verses 35 through 38. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord. From the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. God is saying here that I'm not done with my people Israel. I'm not casting them off and I will not cast them off. As long as there's sunlight every day, as long as there's moon and stars at night, as long as these things remain, so will my covenant remain. So it's an everlasting covenant, everlasting with the Jewish people. Even in the context of the new covenant, because if you read the verses earlier here in Jeremiah 31, it's talking about the new covenant. We will speak about that a little bit more. That's the covenant that God cut with the entire world through the Messiah, Jesus, for all who will believe. And the gospel is to the Jew first, but also to the entire world. Hallelujah. The next thing we want to understand about honoring the Jewish people and why we should honor them, why we should understand our Jewish heritage and its connection to the church, is that the Bible was preserved through them. The word of God from the beginning until the latter times of the end of the prophets of old, until God was bringing the Messiah upon the earth beginning in the what we call the New Testament, or the Barit Kadashah. In the Hebrew Bible, that is considered from Genesis through Second Chronicles for the Hebrew Bible, but it's all of what we would call the Old Testament. All of the same books are there, but they're in a different order. The Jews refer to this as the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. They call the Tanakh, and it stands for the Torah, Which are the first five books of Moses, the Nevi'im, which are the prophets' writings, and the Ketuvim, which are the writings of the history books, the wisdom literature, the poetic books, etc. They did meticulous preservation throughout the generations from the beginning, from Moses. Meticulous preservation by the Jewish rabbis, Levites, scribes, etc. They were written, handwritten, hand copied very exactly on scrolls. Even in Josiah's day, we find the scrolls being found and they brought revival when they were found and when they were read. The Torah is Moses' books. The Neboim and the Ketuvim are the remaining books in what we would call the Old Testament. In the days of Jeremiah, he wrote his book on a scroll. The king burned it, but God gave it back to him again. It was God's word to begin with, so God told him, write it a second time, and he did, and it's been preserved for us. Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament all affirmed all of these as holy scriptures. Jesus affirmed them. The apostles affirmed them. They were fulfilled in the New Testament in Jesus Christ and the church and the coming prophetic words about how everything will end all of that is fulfillment, especially when we look at Matthew's gospel, for instance, and the book of Hebrews, and Paul's writings, say, in, in the book of Romans, etc. There's much fulfillment in those scriptures. Matthew writes his, and many times, his entire book. He's proving that Yeshua, Jesus Christ, is the promised Messiah from old. And he keeps referring back to the Old. He keeps quoting from the Old Testament. He keeps quoting from the Tanakh. Jesus and the Apostles all affirmed these as holy scriptures. They were fulfilled. They were quoted. They were referred to. And the scriptures themselves even bear this out. You cannot ignore or cut out the Old Testament or the Tanakh from the story of the church and from the connection to the New Testament. If you tried to take and throw out the Old, there are some today that are trying to do that. They're telling you that you don't need the Old Testament. It's not pertinent to you. It's not relevant to you. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If you try to cut out the Old Testament, you look at your New Testament, go through, mark every single time that a An Old Testament scripture is either quoted or referred to or fulfilled, and they would say this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Daniel or the prophet Isaiah or the Psalms or whatever it was. If you go through the New Testament and you try to cut out the Old Testament, you will be left with nothing but a bunch of confetti, shredded confetti, if you try to do that and it will make no sense, and you cannot put it together. We need to understand that the Bible, the old and the new, is one book with one author, the Holy Spirit of the living God, and one central figure, and that is all about the Messiah of Israel, Jesus the Christ. The scriptures themselves attest to the fact that the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are written by the Holy Spirit. He is the author of the entire book. It is one book with one author and one central figure. In Second Peter, Peter affirms this also. He says this in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 and 21 say this, knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the entire Bible, both the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, the Jews called the Tanakh, and the New Testament of the Barit Kadashah, it is all one book with one author. It's verbally inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And this was attested to by Jesus and attested by Peter and the Apostles. The scriptures are canonized for us to understand the books that are from the Holy Spirit's inspiration, not the extra biblical books like the Apocrypha or the book of Enoch or the book of Yesher or whatever. Those may contain good history, but they are not inspired by God's Holy Spirit. So we need to understand that. We need to, to understand that the canon of scripture is the true and Verbal inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the Living God. We also need to understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And rather than get into more about that, I would direct you, if you would like, you can look that up in my episodes called The Cross is the Filter. I did a short series. I think it was two or three studies, maybe two or three lessons. And I explained how we in the New Testament church need to understand the Old Testament in light of the New Some of the Old Testament law stops at the cross because it's fulfilled there, but some of the Old Testament and most of the Old Testament law carries on to today. It's still applicable to us today, including the Ten Commandments. I heard a recent man, pastor of a large mega church, say that the Ten Commandments are not for us today. That is not true. You cannot support that from the Holy Scriptures. The Ten Commandments are still applicable to us today. For example, in the New Testament, we still find the commandment for children to obey and honor their parents. We still find the commandment to not steal. Paul wrote, let him who stole steal no more, but rather to work diligently to give to other people. We still find the commandment to not have adultery or any other types of sexual sins. In the New Testament, Jesus affirmed them. Jesus said, you've heard that it's been said you don't commit adultery. But I say to you, you don't even look at someone with lust in your heart. So Jesus and the New Testament apostles affirmed that the Ten Commandments are still applicable today. The Holy Scriptures and much of the law is still for us today. Either in observation and obedience to it or in application and wisdom and principle for us. Many other civil, family laws, etc., and precepts, many of the wisdom verses from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Psalms apply and give us principles for family, for finances, for practical things in our lives. The way we distinguish what's applicable and what's not applicable to the New Testament church meaning that it was fulfilled by Jesus Christ and that was the end of the law for that particular thing. And if you want to understand that more, I direct you to those episodes. The cross is the filter. Paul also tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the Old Testament, these things that were written prior to the time of the New Testament authors was for our examples. They give us patterns, role models, wisdom, principles, etc. And Paul also teaches us that this Old Testament was for our tutor, especially the law. It was for our tutor. It was to lead us to Christ. The word Torah in Hebrew literally means to point to or to give direction to. And so Paul makes that clear in Galatians chapter three, that the law was our tutor to lead us to Jesus. The third thing that we owe honor to the Jews for and can appreciate and need to understand the connection too is that they brought us the Messiah of the world. The Savior of the world came through the Jews. He was the promised King of the Jews. He was the promised Messiah all through the Old Testament. And he had to match exactly every single detail of what was required in the Torah, in the Ketuvim, and in the Neveen, he had to match it all. Every single thing in the Tanakh, Jesus had to match. And it's fulfilled exactly in detail in the New Testament. If you will read it in the New Testament, you will see the connection. For instance, I just want to mention one here for you. I may mention a second one. Jesus came on the scene and in his ministry, many times you find him speaking in parables, a direct fulfillment of Psalm chapter 78 verse 2, which prophesied that the coming Messiah would speak in parables and utter dark sayings of old, it says. When Jesus was held at trial at Caiaphas's house on the night of his betrayal, the Bible tells us that they were ridiculing him, they were trying to find false witnesses against him. They finally found two that claimed he blasphemed, etc. And so they had him on this mock trial and they adjured him. Caiaphas adjured him to speak. And at that point he had to speak or he would have violated Leviticus chapter five, verse one. He could not keep silent in that moment, but he said, yes, I am, but I won't see you again until you see me in glory, until you see me. In majesty. But when they got so angry with him, they spat on him. Now think about this for a moment. We need to understand the scene here. Caiaphas has gathered according to the gospels. There are the Sanhedrin is there, the council, the elders they were called, the chief priest. That would have been about 24 people. The Sanhedrin would have been about 70 plus Caiaphas, the high priest. And then you have the scribes as well and others that were there. So you're talking about anywhere from 70, 80 people to 100 people in the room, all disdaining him, or most of them disdaining him. We don't know if Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were there. We know that they did not consent to his death. We do not know if they were at this meeting or not. But the group that was there, that was ridiculing and hating him, spat on him. Now, why is this significant for us to understand? because it was a teeny-weeny little detail from the Old Testament that had to be met. And it's found in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 11. The Bible says that every sacrifice acceptable to God must be salted. Jesus affirmed that in Mark chapter 9, verse 49, when Jesus said these words, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. When they spat on him, they were doing it out of disgust. They were doing it as an insult. They were doing it because they hated him. But God in heaven saw to it that the sacrifice for the entire world's sin was salted because in their spit, that was slobbering all down his face because his hands were bound behind him. He couldn't wipe it off. They were salting the acceptable sacrifice before the Holy God, and they didn't even realize it. The priests were the ones that had to salt the sacrifice, and these were priests that were doing this to our Messiah. Praise be to God. Every single detail has been fulfilled, and not one has been missed. In the Old Testament, we can observe the pattern where For instance, the Ark of the Covenant representing the glory and the presence of the living God was to be borne by four priests on their shoulders. That's what the four corners and the poles were all about. When you come to the New Testament, we have four Gospels because they are to bear Jesus to the world. He's the coming glory and presence of the living God who came in the New Testament days, in those days, and he was God come in the flesh and they were to bear him to the world. Matthew, his commission was especially to bear Jesus to the Jewish people and to show and reveal that Jesus is the Messiah promised of old to the Jewish people from their very own scriptures. That was Matthew's mission. He had to reveal and show Jesus as the prophesied Messiah, son of Abraham, son of David. All four of the gospel writers were bearing Jesus and revealing Jesus and bringing Jesus to the world. And in the life of Jesus, he matched every detail of what was prophesied and every demand of the Old Testament and of the Torah. And this not only proves his Messiahship, but it also guarantees us of his second coming, exactly as the scriptures tell us because he came the first time and met every detail. He will come again and he will meet every remaining detail exactly as the scriptures say. This gives us confidence to be bold witnesses for him and it gives us also types and shadows from the actual prophetic words and the patterns and other types from these scriptures. The fourth reason is because of the covenantal promise and blessings. We have spoke about this at the very beginning. The covenant with Abraham was unconditional. The covenant with Moses was conditional through the law. If you do this, I will do this. If you don't do this, then I won't allow you to enjoy your land or whatever it is. You'll be cast out of your land if you disobey me, if you get into these sins. And God gave them many, many, many times to repent He gave them plenty of time to turn back and he sent prophets saying, repent, turn around, don't keep going this way because judgment is coming. But they wouldn't listen and so they got the consequences of their choices. So Moses' covenant was conditional, but the covenant God made with Abraham was unconditional. God alone walked through those pieces and God cut covenant with Abraham. God cut covenant with David, giving him the promise of the coming king and kingdom From the tribe of Judah, from his line of the Messiah who would sit on his throne being a son of David. And this was fulfilled in Jesus. The reference to the son of David, the Jews knew referred to Messiah. And this is why they got so upset at the triumphal entry. And they were trying to say, shut the people up. They're giving you the Messiah cry from Psalm 118 because the leaders were refusing to accept Jesus as the Messiah, but he was and he is the Messiah of the Jews. Jesus, God in the flesh, came and cut the new covenant spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 31 and in Hebrews chapter 8 with Jesus on the cross. At the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper, his last Passover Seder, he cut the covenant meal. He enjoyed the covenant meal with his disciples and passed the cup of redemption, the third cup of Passover, to them and asked them to drink of it all. And when they drank of it and received the cup and received the bread representing his body, the marriage union was sealed. And he instituted through his death on the cross, the new covenant, the full expansion and exposition of the Abrahamic covenant, bringing Gentiles in the church, Gentile believers and Jewish believers making us one in Jesus Christ, as Colossians 2 tells us, and as Galatians 3 tells us in its fullness, being the seed of Abraham by faith in Jesus. The cup of redemption was the third of the four cups of Passover. Even in the image that we use for this class, we have chosen to use that picture to represent our being one in Messiah through the cup of redemption, through the Passover meal, through the covenant meal that God was cutting with mankind. And you can find out more about that if you're interested in my Holy Week or Passover Passion Special titled Cups and Covenant. The Old Testament covenant was a very serious thing. God cut it with Abraham in a blood covenant in Genesis 15. God cut it with mankind in a blood covenant with Jesus shedding his blood on the cross, the exact pattern of what God did with Abraham in Genesis 15 when God alone walked through the pieces. Jesus alone, his blood alone is what saves us. We need nothing more and we can add to it nothing more. Praise be to God. The fifth reason is because we are grafted into the original olive tree whose roots are Jesus the Messiah. We are grafted into the tree according to Romans chapter nine through 11. They are the original tree with Jesus as the root, with the Messiah as the root, with the son of Abraham, the son of David as the root. The Bible speaks in that passage about branches being broken off that represents the Jews who have rejected their Messiah. And it talks about though, however, that they can be grafted in again. And that is what's happening today in our lifetime with the Messianic Jewish movement. Praise be to God. We are never to boast against the branches because God is able and is in fact doing it, grafting in those branches again. And we, the wild olive branches, have been grafted in to the original tree. The next reason is that the Jews are still God's chosen people. God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham just as we saw And they are to be honored and prayed for, loved and appreciated. The modern miracle of Israel. The rebirth was one of the greatest miracles, if not the greatest miracle of the 20th century. And it has become a super sign that God is not done with Israel and we are entering the final days. That rebirth of Israel fulfilled the prophetic word from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7 and 8. God is not done with the Jewish people. God is fulfilling his promise to the Jews. In Aliyah, he's bringing them back from all the nations just like Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 43 verse 5 and 6 and Isaiah 49 verse 12 and 13 and in Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 10. It's interesting too just to know this that since Israel was reborn as a nation in 1948, now there are about 3,300,000 People back in Israel through Aliyah. The last number I had was 3,340,000 people because of Aliyah that God has brought back and he's still doing it day after day after day more and more are coming home to their homeland. I want us to look at Romans chapter 9 through 11 in greater detail soon but for the sake of time we won't get into that in this particular lesson but we will include it in a little bit. God is not done with the Jewish people, neither should we be. The last thing I want us to just briefly focus on is what the Jews teach us with their examples. Another reason to give them honor and respect. They teach us the fear of the Lord. I'll never forget when I first visited with the Messianic Jewish congregation in my local area. And there was such an awe and a reverence for the holiness of God. In that place, it was immediately felt as soon as the service began. And it was just a joyous thing for me. There was a a holy reverence, a holy fear of the Lord. And we need to get back to that today, beloved friends. The Bible tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is a godly awe and respect that we need to have called the fear of the Lord. And we need to honor him today. And so the Jewish people teach us that in different ways. They teach us to honor and respect God's word, that it is the verbal inspired word of the living God. It is God breathed. It is God speaking to us himself. So they have a high respect for the word of God. They have a high respect for God's holy name. They will not say any pronunciation to the tetragrammaton, the four letters, Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh. They will not speak about that. In our language, it might be YHVH or YHWH or whatever, but they will not give pronunciation to that because they revere it so much. Most of the time, if that word is used, they will either exchange it and say Adonai or they will say Hashem, meaning the name, meaning the name of God, the living God, but they will not utter it as Yahweh or Jehovah like we might do in churches today. They have such high reverence for that. Even in their writings, when they write the word of the Lord or when they write about the name of God, if you see, for instance, Messianic songs, you'll see that they will spell them with, say, G and then a little dash or hyphen, D. They'll say L hyphen R-D. The reason is they're giving honor to that. They won't put a vowel in there so that they do not dishonor God's name even if it's written and found by others later. There's a high reverence for the name of the living God. And they call him and know him as Hashem, the name. The Jewish people have great reverence for the Shema and most Jews know and appreciate and respect the Shema which is found in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy six, verses four and five. The Shema is dearly respected and loved among the Jewish people, and it should be for us as well. The Jews teach us many things, and we have many things that we can give honor to them for. Thank God that he preserved his holy word. Thank God that he has made the everlasting covenant and brought in now the new covenant, patterned exactly like Genesis 15, made with Abraham from of old. Thank God he sent us the Messiah. Our Messiah was a Jew. He was born. He was the son of Abraham, the son of David, the king, Messiah king, who will rule on David's throne of the tribe of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. His first coming was so that he would fulfill the pattern and the prophetic word about his death and his suffering to pay the ransom for the souls of men and women just like you and me. But his second coming, he's coming as the roaring lion, the conquering king, and he will rule and reign on his throne in Jerusalem in a coming day. I pray that this has been a blessing to you, and Lord willing, you can continue to join us as we continue through this study, One in Messiah, celebrating our Jewish heritage. May God bless you today, and keep you, and cause his face to shine upon you, and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you, and give you shalom. In Jesus' name, the name of Yeshua Hamashiach. Amen.